That's why we're here today. Thank you, Dan. I am so glad you guys came this morning. You know, it's because we believe that we're here to dig in this book. We've been looking at the prayers, like Ron said, of people that lived in the oldest part of the Bible. And you know, when you dig in this book with the intent to apply what you learn, things change. And these, these prayers we've been studying have been stirring me up, giving me a new approach to my prayers. So I hope that you came this morning with a sense of eagerness to dig in today. So can I ask you to go ahead and get out your outline that came in your program about prayers like Hannah, praying like her. And, and your Bible, if you brought it, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 1 this morning. As we look at Hannah, you know, she was a woman with giant-sized faith. She was intense about her pursuit of God, but she still found herself in a circumstance where she was feeling overlooked and lonely. You know, we all suffer in some way or another, don't we? But when you add to that the sensation that you're alone in your suffering, that no one is understanding you, well, it just kicks it up a notch, doesn't it? And I have learned so much out of Hannah's experience about that. I'm just going to try to serve up what's been cooking for me out of her story. Let me give you a little background first. You know, we hear a lot about Israel in the news, don't we? Well, Hannah was from the nation of Israel. And not only did God, not only does God have a plan to use Israel in his purpose, but he had a plan to use Hannah, and she didn't even know about it, at least not at first. You know, at this point in Israel's history, things were at an unprecedented low. I'm talking spiritually and morally. You know, even the spiritual leaders there in Israel were floundering. You can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 2, if you want, about the priest Eli and his despicable sons. I mean, they had lost any sense of true north. So things were dark, for Israel. But there was a remnant of people who remained faithful, and Hannah and her husband Elkanah were among those people, but their family was a bit dysfunctional. Now, none of us can relate to that, right? Now, have you ever gotten a peek into the dysfunction of somebody else's family and felt just a little bit better about your own? You know? I visited my friend Christy a couple of weeks ago, and when I used her restroom, I had this silent satisfaction when I saw a sign in her bathroom. It said this, changing the toilet paper roll does not cause brain damage. <laughs> I had this strange comfort inside because, you know, I've been trying to convince my kids of that for a long time. Now, Hannah and Elkanah, they wanted to live for God, but they were regular folks like the rest of us. They had their hang-ups. It says in chapter 1, there was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah. Now, Elkanah had two wives, uh-oh, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah did not. Oh, that's a mouthful right there. Because husband Elkanah had made a poor choice to take two wives. Now, there isn't a single place in the whole Bible where a polygamous family is depicted as anything other than miserable. One writer I read said that Elkanah was in for it from the get-go because he got two mother-in-laws. <laughs> now, likely, Hannah was his first wife, but because she remained childless, 
He probably took Peninnah as a second wife so he could perpetuate his family line. And she started to have babies and lots of them. So here's the scene. Each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh. He would take his family to worship there and sacrifice to the Lord. On the days Elkanah, Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to Peninnah and each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, he would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. So Peninnah would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same. Peninnah would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. And each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. So Hannah desperately wanted a child. That's why she felt so overlooked by God, by everybody else. And, you know, we can understand that. Maybe some of you have been through infertility. Ron and I have. And, you know, for us, it was a maddening, heart-sick, crazy time. You know, one of the hardest times for me was going to the baby showers that were held for friends. I mean, it was hard. But even though many of us understand the agony of childlessness, we really can't get the gist of this scripture until we understand what it meant for Hannah in her culture to be childless. See, in her society... The number of kids you had determined your economic status. See, kids were your workforce. So the number of kids you had determined how well you made a living or not. And parents, they relied on their children in old age. Uh, But only four out of ten kids even grew up to be adults. So it was really important, the number of kids you had. They had no social security. I mean, you had to rely on your kids for your survival. And then there was the good of your nation. You see, its survival depended on birth rates to stay powerful. A big army was depending on high birth rates. So women who had lots of kids were considered patriots. And women who had no children were worthless. They were a disgrace. Now, most of us, when we say, I wish I had a child, what we're really saying is, I think it would fulfill me emotionally to have a child. But this was different. See, this was the difference between status and disgrace. And when we understand the enormous cultural pressure that was put on a woman in Hannah's society, we can see that children were basically an idolatry for women in those days. And you might be thinking, idolatry? Nah, you don't mean idolatry. Well, well, think about it. What is an idol? An idol, you might want to write this down, is a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. Something that you ought to enjoy that becomes the center of your life. Now here's an example of idolatry, okay? I was trying to get my deck painted, so I was giving my dog Lucy the cold shoulder as she carried one stick after another to me and plopped it down, begging me to throw it. You know, when she got to eight sticks stacked up, I just had to stop painting and take a picture for you because, see, Lucy has an idolatry problem. (laughs) See, the stick, the ball. It's beyond being a good thing. It's now what defines her. That's an idol. Some of you are saying, Kim, that's why she's called a retriever. (laughs) I know, but it's annoying, just saying. 
women in Hannah's day were kind of forced to regard children as the center of their existence. No wonder Hannah felt overlooked. We can think, well, that sounds awful. Aren't we glad that women today aren't under that kind of oppression? But you know, I started thinking about this. This happens in every culture where pressure is put on people, men and women alike, to think, because I have this, this thing, I have meaning, I have worth. It happens around us every day. You know, the little elementary-aged girl who has to have a certain brand of jeans because everybody else is wearing them, while her teenage athlete brother just has to take steroids because everybody else on the team is taking them. While their 40-year-old dad just has to have a new four-wheel drive pickup because everybody's driving one. You see, every culture puts things in front of us, in front of people, things that are not God, and says, you have to have that, or else you're not even a person. You don't even have a self. You know, if we buy into that thing, whatever it is, it will drive you into the ground. The only way to escape the idol system of your culture, the only way to realize your significance is to let God and his love be what's most important to your heart. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Well, this is why. Her natural desire for a child has become the center of her whole identity, and Panina is rubbing her nose in it. Hannah has a great big empty spot in her heart. Now look at Hannah. What does she do about it? Hannah had heard these messages about her identity coming from Peninnah. You know, your only hope is children. And then it says, when they had finished eating and drinking, Hannah stood up. She stood up. Now, why is that in there? I think it's because she realized that this idol could not fill her empty spot. She finally took action. She stood up. And what did she do? Hannah got up and went to pray. She prayed. You know that that's the most powerful action you can take? Anne Lamott wrote a book called Help, Thanks, Wow about prayer. You know, as I studied Hannah's prayer, I thought, that's it. These words, help, thanks, wow, describe how, God, how she approached God. And so today we're just going to use that as our outline. Help, thanks, wow. I think if you and I can keep those words close to our lips, that we'll be able to develop a prayer life where we can see God show up in the times that we're feeling overlooked and left out. First, Hannah cried, help! That's the first part of her prayer. And look at how she approached God. Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance to the tabernacle. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this vow, O Lord of heaven's armies. Now let's stop right there. O Lord of heaven's armies. What is she saying? She's calling him the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. Hannah is remembering who he is, his majesty, his infinite power. She's saying, God, you are great. And then she says, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer. Now, think about those words. Hannah is assuming something about God. She's assuming that her own broken heart matters to him. 
even though she's just one obscure woman on the backside of nowhere, that this Lord who made the galaxies, who is infinitely great, is at the same time tender and compassionate towards her. She's saying, God, you're good. You see, that's the God of the Bible, and Hannah believed it. Do you believe that? That he's great and that he's good? You know, when I was a little kid, I was taught that prayer. Do you guys remember this prayer? God is great. God is good. I bet most of us look like that, right? <laughs> well, did you know that that's not just a kid's prayer? I mean, those words may be basic to prayer. They may be beginning sounding, but, you know, those words are critical. Now, speaking of a kid... I got permission from a kid to to share this with you. My 14-year-old daughter, she's been begging me to teach her how to drive. So a couple Sundays ago, I took her out here, you know, when your cars weren't here. Aren't you glad? (laughs) And I gave her her first driving lesson, you know. And I, I taught her a couple of basic things, things I could tell she did not know. And that is, where is the brake and where is the accelerator? Basic, right? Now, even though those are basic, they're critical. Wouldn't it be great if when she's an old lady driving around, if she can still depend upon the fact that there's a brake and an accelerator? Basic, but critical. Do you know what? These things about God that Hannah was remembering, they're basic, but they're critical. They're foundational to your praying. Help! Because, you see, the only way you're going to come to God is if you believe that he's powerful enough to do something about it. And the only way you're going to dare even approach him is if you believe that he's good and that he cares about you. So, if you want to pray like Hannah, then depend on who God is. Depend on it. Hannah looked beyond the pain that she was in and began her prayer by reaffirming what she believed, that God is great and he's good. And the next part of Hannah's prayer sounds pretty outrageous. Listen, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord. His hair will never be cut. Now, you might be thinking, what is she doing? I mean, that doesn't sound like praying. That sounds like bargaining, you know, horse trading. Sounds a little manipulative, don't you think? Well, listen, we need some more background here. You see, in Israel, if you um, wanted to serve God with, as a vocation out of, for the rest of your life, and you were not from the tribe of Levi, then you would take what's called a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow, see, it's explained in Numbers chapter 6, and it, a couple of things would distinguish you. One is that you would never drink st- strong drink, and your hair would never be cut. I, I bet you guys have heard of Samson, right? He was a Nazarite. Well, see, Hannah, she had made a really life-altering decision here. Can you see the sacrifice that she's making? A Nazarite child is of no help to the economy of the family. A Nazarite child cannot take care of you in old age. A Nazarite child won't even be there. He's going to be off in ministry somewhere. A Nazarite child it can't help you emotionally. See, all the emotional and cultural reasons for having a child are gone. Listen, something has changed about Hannah. Something that sets her apart. She's crying help and she's saying something really radical. She's saying, God, it's not about me. I'm here to point to you. 
That's my purpose. That's what I want my life to be about. Now compare her prayer here to the attitude of Peninnah, who's saying, look at me. Look at all my kids. See, it was all about Peninnah. I want you to take this mind-blowing decision that Hannah made and just take it and put it on the back burner for a minute. Okay, let it simmer there. Hannah's declaration, it's not about me, God, I'm here to point to you. We're going to come back to that. But right now, let's go on and finish the story. It says the scene continues with Eli the priest totally misunderstanding Hannah. She's praying to God. She's moving her lips, but no sounds are coming out. And he, he totally gets it wrong. He says, do you have to come in here drunk? Do you think Eli needed a little sensitivity training? She says, I'm not drunk. I'm hurting. I'm praying out of my anguish. And he says, oh, in that case, then go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant the requests you asked of him. It was a blessing, even if it sounded a little awkward to me. Look at the way, though, that Hannah seized it as the words of God to her. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. See, this was the moment that Hannah's prayer went from help to thanks. She's sensing God's favor, and she's not going to lose time you know, second-guessing it. She, she chose to believe that God was on her side. Now, if you dissect what Hannah said here, you might say, well, it sounds to me like she's just thanking the priest. But see, there's a clue here that Hannah made an intentional halt to praying help and intentionally started to say thank you to God. And I'll show you why I believe that. It says in verse 18, then she went back and began to what? Eat again. And she was no longer sad. She stopped being depressed. She changed her countenance. Anne Lamott says this, gratitude starts in our hearts and then dovetails into behavior. You know, Hannah could have been a bear. <laughs> Do you know anyone who, when they are miserable, makes sure everybody around them knows it and then tries to draw everybody else down into their misery too? I mean, who lets the pain they're going through make them into a bear like it's going to help? <laughs> Hannah could have taken that grumpy approach. Well, I love this email I got from a friend. It said this, in this life, I'm a woman. In my next life, I'm going to come back as a bear. When you're a bear, you get to hibernate. You do nothing but sleep for six months. And before that, you're supposed to eat yourself silly. And you birth your children, who are the size of walnuts, while you're sleeping and wake to partially grown cute cubs. I could deal with that. If you're a bear, your mate expects you to wake up growling. He also expects you to have hairy legs and excess body fat. <laughs> that would be nice, wouldn't it? See, a change happened here for Hannah. Gratitude changes the way we act. Hannah got happy. It doesn't say that she prayed and then she got pregnant and then she got happy. It says that a change of countenance happened right at this moment here before she got the answer to her prayers. You know, gratitude is a huge mind shift. My friend Nathan has chronic back pain. And he has, he, he'll get random muscle spasms that will send him to the floor. And he told me 
that on the days that he can look up and be grateful for anything, that those are good days. Do you know that gratitude is good for you? Not just spiritually, but physically as well. You know, we're coming up to Thanksgiving, and there was this headline from the Wall Street Journal. It said, thank you. No, thank you. Grateful people are happier, healthier, long after the leftovers are gobbled up. It says they have more energy, more optimism, and more social connections than those who do not, according to studies. They're also less likely to be depressed, envious, greedy, or alcoholics. Now, how do we act when we're grateful? Do we get loud? Do we make a public show with arm-waving praise? Well, maybe. Sometimes that's how I act grateful. But maybe what's louder in God's ears is when we, he sees us do something out of our gratitude. You know, uh, pick up some trash. <laughs> Let somebody else go first in traffic. Or maybe call a cousin that nobody else in the family wants to talk to just to say, how you doing? You know, I think it's better than a pill that we can take for depression. When, when we let God see our quiet gratitude, how we're blown away that we've been so blessed. So if you want to pray like Hannah, then begin to thank God. And then do something out of your gratitude. She was front-loading her faith. You know, her circumstances hadn't changed, had they? She was still childish. She was still in the company of a woman who took recreational delight in making fun of her. But Hannah had changed. She was different because of her gratitude. And it says that after they got back home, that Elkanah and Hannah slept together. And the Bible says, the Lord remembered her. What a statement. Do you know that the Lord remembers you? Even when you feel lonely. He remembers you. He sees the tears you've cried. The Bible says he saves them even in a bottle. He, it says that he pays attention to your heart. The Lord remembers you. Well, it says the Lord remembered Hannah and she got pregnant. I just have to say, how understated the Bible can be. I mean, for this woman, it was a miracle. The Lord had closed her womb and now he opened it. For some reason, we just have to read between the lines. We are not allowed to see her doing cartwheels when there is a plus sign on her pregnancy test. But what it does tell us is that Hannah gave birth to a son that year. And they named him Samuel, which means asked of God. God doesn't answer every request that way, but he did in this case. And the next time that it was time for the family to go back and worship at the tabernacle, she told her husband, you all go on. I'll stay home and care for baby Samuel. And when he's, when he's weaned, then I'm going to follow through. I'm going to give him to God where he can serve the rest of his life. And Elkanah, her husband, said, do whatever you think is best. But I'm going to pray for courage for you to keep your promise to God. And, you know, that's just what Hannah did. She never wavered when that time came. And she took young Samuel, he was about three years old probably, to the tabernacle where he would begin his lifetime of service. And I just imagine this moment when she walked her young son in that tabernacle. You know, he's dirty from the trip. His clothes are askew. There's a stick in his hand. And I just picture them standing in front of Eli. And she said, remember me? I'm the same woman who stood near you praying to the Lord. 
But look at what God has done. Look at this boy he's given. But I'm here to fulfill my vow. I'm not keeping this boy. No, I'm giving him to serve God. Imagine all the thoughts and the feelings she must have had. How she could have waffled. But I'm so glad that right here the Bible is not understated. It tells us exactly what she prayed. It was basically this. Wow. She prayed a wow prayer. You know, wow is about having one's mind blown by the mesmerizing or the miraculous. Then Hannah prayed, it says in chapter 2. My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord has made me strong. I rejoice because you rescued me. She's saying, wow, God. It seemed to me that I was stuck forever in my situation. But you turned it all around. Things might seem like they're set in stone, like there's no changing what is. But God, you're the one who calls it. I was waiting so long, God, that I finally figured out what I'm after. And it's your glory. That's what I want. You're the God who reverses things. You know, we don't know that Hannah ever had a clue just how much her decision to sacrifice her agenda contributed to God's story. How God would use this son that she gave up. Do you remember how Samuel became the next leader for the nation of Israel? How God used him to grab the attention of his people. It was through Samuel that God spoke who would be the first two kings of Israel. Now even though Hannah didn't know all God was going to do. I want to ask you right now. Would you really listen? Especially those of you who are feeling overlooked and lonely. Listen to Hannah's wow over how God reverses things. In verse 4, she says the warriors now stumble and the stumblers are strong. In verse 5, she says the hungry are filled and the filled are empty. The barren are fertile and the fertile are barren. You know, Hannah went on to have five more kids after this. She says, God, you lift the poor from the dust. You bring the dead to life. He is the God who reverses things. So if you want to pray like Hannah, then do this. Delight in how God reverses things. Just think about what you've seen him do. I have a friend whose husband had an affair. But God has reversed things. And not only has their marriage survived, it's actually thriving today. But she even let God use this incredible pain to to see her own problem of codependency and being spineless and and now she's allowed God to make her into a strong woman who can help others I have another friend who was raised by an alcoholic mom and not only has she forgiven her mom not only did she nurse her mom to the end of her life and not only does she honor her mom with her words but she's allowed that experience to turn into compassion and she's helping other people who are struggling with the same sort of problem with alcohol in their family. (laughs) My goodness, when I think about how God reverses things, I can't help but remember how five years before I met my husband, Ron, how I brought suffering on myself by almost marrying the wrong guy. I mean, I was within three days of it, and thank God he was arrested. I saw handcuffs and him being toted off in the car. It was true. And you see, God reversed things. 
he was a fraud. He, he had a record. It was a big mess. But, you know, God used it. He used that to teach me compassion toward people who were behind bars. And you know what? Not only did he spare me from marrying a fraud, but in just a few months, I'm going to celebrate 25 years of sharing life with sharing life with a man who has integrity, a man whose heart is committed to God, to me and to our family, a man with whom I can run this race for Jesus. I'm so glad God reverses things, aren't you? Yeah. You might be saying, well, Kim, good for you. <laughs> good for your friends. Good for Hannah. You know, God reversed stuff for you girls, but I just don't see how he can do it for me. I mean, my life is too big of a wreck. You might be saying, I've, I've been through so, so much pain you can't imagine. I've made mistakes you can't imagine. I've blown it too many times. God could never use me. Well, listen, God never wastes a hurt. He reverses things. He wants you to see your life as a game changer for his purposes. He wants to take what you've endured, the weight, the suffering, even the mistakes that you've made, and he wants to use it all as part of a plan that is bigger than you. That's the wow. How Hannah prayed, God, I may be hurting. I may not have chosen this circumstance, but God, it's not about me. I'm here to point to you. In fact, do you remember? That's what we said on the back burner before. That courageous decision that Hannah made. How Hannah made this sacrifice before, he, before Samuel was ever even conceived. Listen, if you want to overcome feeling overlooked and left out, if you're really ready to move beyond that feeling, then pray this like Hannah. Make this declaration. Declare, it's not about me, God. I am here to point to you. See, that decision got her through her darkest days. And better than that? It became her investment in something that would outlast her. And you know, to illustrate this, I've asked Jerome if he would please just darken the room for a moment. You see, Hannah's choice to let God use her makes me want to think of my life like this flame. You see, it's only burning for a very short time. You know, I could make a big deal out of this flame. I could say, hey, it's all about me, getting all I can get. You know, like Mary said two weeks ago, uh, you know, live fast and leave a good-looking corpse. Or I could consider this flame as my chance to make a big deal out of him. You see, everything exists for the glory of God. And relatively speaking, my little burst of flame is going to last for about five seconds. But I can lean this flame over into his eternal glory. I can let my life be part of bringing glory to him because one day soon, my little flame is going to go out. And you know, from heaven, we're all going to see it. How God used it all. The weight, the pain, the suffering. As we learn to run to God for help, as we learn to say thanks, even before the answer shows up. And one day we're going to look at his glory and we're going to say, wow, I'm so glad my little flame was part of that. It says in Isaiah 26, 
Your name and your renown are our soul's desire. See, that's what Hannah's prayer had become. And that can be your prayer and mine too. So that on that day, as we look back at how our God came through for his renown, our only prayer is going to be, wow. Let's, let's just talk to him right now. This God of such renown. Maybe there's an ache in your life. Maybe you've been waiting and wondering when it's going to be your turn, your day to see your dream fulfilled. Maybe you have a hole in your heart and you're feeling overlooked. Well, this is your moment to pray like Hannah, to say, God, help. You can start by just saying, God, you are great and you are good and I'm going to remember that. Do you know that you have something that Hannah didn't even have? You have Jesus. You have the cross. You see, the, the cross is the ultimate cosmic display that God reverses things. He, he even re- reversed death for you when he rose from the grave. Do you know that Jesus has spoken a better blessing over you? Jesus has sealed it that God has a plan. So right now, can, in the quietness of your heart, can you just whisper to him, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your plan for me. And I know, Lord, that I have a choice today. I can declare it. I can declare that your plan is my hope. Like that first song we sing, you be lifted high. I am nothing without you. So I ask that you would use my life, Lord, and you would give me eyes to see how you're reversing things. Help me to truly say wow about the renown of your name because it's for your name that I want to live my life. And we pray this in the strong, resurrected name of Jesus Christ. Amen.